Hey folks, Michael Rosso. I'm here with Leslie Lazenby. Hello everyone. Mark O'Brien. Hi there. And today is part two of our interview with Sam Sherman. Uh, this particular segment opens up with Sam talking about how when he was a young man, he would collect old photo magazines. So let's say it's the year 1963. Sam would be looking at a 1950s old photo mag so he can see what was selling years ago. And then he'd have that magazine with him. He'd go into a camera store and look for that camera and then get it for that listed price. <laughs> Some really awesome stories here. And then the segment is going to end where Sam talks about how to create, in a camera sense, how to create a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Yes. So some interesting stories about uh, Sam and his, in his world of shooting film, cameras, film photography. Let's get right into it. This is so weird. It's so weird. Most of my stories, they verge on coincidence, strangeness, whatever. And it's my whole life is like that. Well, I'm always there buying outdated photography magazines. I went to back issue magazine stores and bookstores, and they would have old photography magazines. And the ones I liked, I liked the um, modern photography of the 50s. I only had a few of those, which I bought on newsstands. But modern photography of the 50s is very good. And I went through it. And I would look through to see what people were selling at the different uh, stores. So this is probably the 60s now. And maybe this is in the 70s when I had my office in Manhattan. I would... I would uh, get to the office at 9 o'clock, and I would be there until about a quarter to 5, 46 in Broadway, and then I would go walking, 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 running down 7th Avenue to go to 6th Avenue to go to all the camera stores, look around. And I, I would always go to Olden. So this is one of those days I got there like 5.15 or something, and I I knew a lot of the salesman there and i said uh wonder if you do me a favor with something I, I i'm looking around for odd stuff and i'm looking up at the top over there and i see a dark blue box and it looks like an old bronica camera this was uh, maybe maybe this was uh 15 20 years after they closed it out now bronica was a kind of an imitation hasselblad they had one Model C that did not have an interchangeable back. It was just a one-piece unit, which Hasselblad never had a one-piece unit. And it had interchangeable inserts. Right. So they invented that before Mamiya. I wanted a Model C. It's just it's something I wanted. And they, I saw it in the old magazine that, that Holden had closed it out. So I get down there and I say, I wonder what's in that box up there. Way up high. What's in that box up there? Oh, I don't know. Some also. I said, is it for sale? Well, everything here is for sale. I said, please bring it down. 
and let me see it. <laughs> they bring it down, put it on the counter. They don't open it. I open it. And there is a brand new Bronica Model C, just as advertised in a, like a 20-year-old older magazine. So I'm thinking, it's still not that cheap. What can I do about this? And I said, uh, what do you want for it? I said, well, we haven't priced it. I said, here's the ad. You didn't say you didn't have it. It's right there for uh, $125. And they said, yeah, I guess it's in our ad. We have to honor it. They weren't trying to, you know, play any games with that. So I said, now go one step further. Let's see if it's working. I tried it to work. I said, uh, would you sell it without the lens? And the answer is, I had extra lenses for what I need another lens for. And they said, well, without the lens, 100 bucks." I said, here's my credit card. Took it right there. Well, eventually it jammed up. Just one day jammed up. And uh, I sent it out to a man who was in um, Northern California who just retired by the name of Ken Ruth, photography on Bald Mountain. Oh, yeah. And he could fix anything. It was a real sweetheart. He could fix anything. When I say anything, I mean anything. And I would send them things, not just to repair them, but to modify them, change what they did. Yeah. It did a lot of things like that for me. So I sent them this uh, thing, and he was knowledgeable about Bronica cameras. He went through it. Nothing was broken, but the grease had congealed inside that's lubricating all the gears, and he flushed it all out and redid it. Well, the answer's simple. It was on that high shelf where all the heat had risen, all the grease in the camera had melted and gone to places it didn't deserve to be. Right. So I had to flush it out, re-lubricate it. it. still works perfectly. Just great. But the fact that I went there because I wanted that camera brand new the way it had been in that ad. Is that, isn't that incredible? Now, I had a Kodak medalist, and I almost considered sending it to, to him to get it routed out so it would take 120 film. Ooh, Because he was still doing it at the time. Oh. And then, and then... Why not? Well, the thing with the medalist was, if you wear glasses, it's a pain in the ass to... to a very use. tiny opening. Yeah. yeah, I never had if, one. If it had a nice finder, I would have kept it, but um, I ended mm. up selling it. Yeah, I never had one, but that was my idea nice to convert it to uh, 120. Yeah. Which should you have, one or two? Middle two. I had the two, too. Oh, wow. And that, that, that helical yeah. was just wonderful. Like wow. Look yeah. at you people. You don't have yours anymore? Uh-uh. But you had it. No, I had one, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. It came from an estate of, of a friend of mine, and I had it for a few years, and I said, you know. Wow. I love the big negatives. They were brilliant. Oh, you know, oh that's a... That's a great camera. Now, here's another thing that's interesting. What superseded the medalist? Let's see who knows. Oh, it's 35 millimeter? I'm not saying oh, a word. Let's see. I should know this. <sighs> I should. The Kodak Ektra. No, that's 35 Oh, millimeter. no. Okay, it was a that's folding camera. preceded. It. it was a folding camera. That's preceded it. Yeah. It's superseded a means to follow. Yeah, it was a full. Oh, uh, well, I've got to tell you. Got okay. you. It's the Kodak Chevron. 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 Yes. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference? I don't know right now. The but... difference is, it still takes 620 film, mm -hmm. but 
it's two and a quarter square. Yeah, that's right. Now, uh, Linda Stephanie and I are out at Universal City on a tour. And we come to a place where there is an enormous Kodak Chevron. It's the size of that fireplace. Oh, wow. That's the Kodak Chevron. I said, oh, my God. I wonder if it works. Of course, they don't work. <laughs> I wonder if I could get this from them. No, I couldn't get it from them. But why was it there? Anybody want to guess? Yes. Um, come on. Come on, come on. You know, this, that's not my area. Do you know it? Anybody guess? It was, it was uh, like lost in, not lost in You're space close. or something. Oh, Land there. of the Giants. Land of the Giants. Yeah, Land of the Giants. Yeah, the, 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 Kodak, the, the Kodak Chevron. <laughs> oh, God. That's so funny. And it took six twenty oh 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 Phil. Awesome. Pretty funny. Okay, Sam. You made your first fortune. Fortune? You made your first fortune selling, it, yet. What you selling eight by tens to high school kids in need. <laughs> and you get out of school. You gotta start thinking about a career and a job, and probably somewhere in there, uh, I don't know for sure. We probably had the issue of um, maybe in the back of your mind, your thought of Vietnam going on too. That can change your career. But what happened after high school? Very good question. Very appropriate. As a subscriber to popular photography i read it cover to cover every every month yeah. and there was a big article in popular photography magazine about the college of the city of new york institute of film techniques well i wanted to go to a film school i was a kid who was a smart kid i skipped two grades so I graduated high school, not at 18, but at 16. So here I am, 16 years old. What am I going to do with my life? Well, I wanted to go to UCLA in California, but I'd never been anywhere. I'm two years younger than my chronological school age should be, and my parents didn't have the money to send me to California. And if they had it, they wouldn't have sent me out there by myself. So I read about the Institute of Film Techniques at City College, and that was a free city school if you had the grades. Well, I went to a advanced tech school, Stuyvesant High School, and uh, then I, re- I figured, well, I better get better grades. So I went for special coaching to the Rhodes School. I did this and did that until I got great grades my last year or two in college, in high school, and it enabled me to pass and go to the free city school, uh, City College Film Institute at City College. And there I took the film course. I, well, I, I didn't just go to college. I worked. I worked all my way through college. I worked, first of all, for the school audiovisual department in screening. I own projectors. I know how to use them. So I would screen for the medical society, for classes, for this, for that. Then in the summer, I went to Hunter College where I taught 
professors how to use audiovisual equipment. Then I went to work one summer for Peerless Film Processing. Had nothing to do with Peerless Camera Store, but it's a company that removes scratches and shrinkage from motion picture film, repaired film that was damaged. I learned to do that. Then during doing all this, I wrote to James Warren, who was putting out and publishing Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, and he hired me to supply him with horror stills and do articles about horror movies. So I started working for him. So I was usually in college doing anywhere from two to three jobs, plus going to school, plus paying for my own books and things like that. And uh, by uh, 1962, when I'd been out of school for two years, uh, I asked my parents, because I felt my career wasn't advancing fast enough, if they would help me because I needed to take a trip to Hollywood. Uh, I felt that that's where I needed to find fame and fortune, that there wasn't enough going on in New York. And so they funded a trip where I was in Los Angeles for three months. And I met a lot of people, did a lot of things, interviewed people for articles for James Warren's magazine, was on the set of movies. I met Boris Karloff, Vincent Price, and Peter Lorre on the set of of, um, The Raven, and uh, did a lot of things. And I ended up meeting Denver Dixon, who was a silent movie director I was interested in, met his son, Al Adamson, and later he and I uh, formed Independent International Pictures Corporation, and we made a lot of pictures in California. And it's all based on my interest as a hobbyist, collector, fan, of going to City College Film Institute, doing all these things I've done, and uh, very diverse. And uh, when I went on that trip to Hollywood, I felt I didn't have good enough cameras. I'm going to need to photograph Hollywood. I may need to document odd, interesting things. And I'm walking down uh, 6th Avenue in Manhattan, and I pass Grand Central Camera Store. And in the window, they have the Aries Penta 35 SLR. So I go in, and I think I want to buy that camera, and I want to see it. And the the, the uh, salesman there uh, is not interested. No, forget about that. That's not any good. I'll show you something better. It's kind of like a bait-and-switch kind of thing. And I'm kind of uh, tuned to that. You know what I'm saying? Well, what does he say? He says, forget that. You don't want that. Here's a brand-new camera called the Kawa E. And this is good, and you'll like it. It's much better than that. So he took it out and showed it to me. And I I said, well, let me see the other one too, because I wanted to compare them. And I, I had to agree with him. It had many more features. It was $10 more expensive. It was $60. The other one was 50 but it had many more features, and uh, it was just beautiful looking. It was just a nice camera. I said, uh, well, I- I'm going to take your word on this. This is good. He said, I- look, I'm going to a trip to L.A. I've never been out in Hollywood. I'm going to do a lot of pictures. I work for a magazine. I need this- all this. It's got to work. It's got to be good. He said, take my word for it. It's It's really good. So I bought that camera, and I was the first really good camera I ever had. And today, people minimize that camera. It's a great camera. 
So I went out and I went across the street to the Panoram Film Labs. And Panoram Film Labs, what they did was re-spooling 35 millimeter uh, from motion picture film, hmm. black and white, negative, onto cartridges. And it was very cheap. So I bought a roll there. And they also had a lab. And I said, I'm going to take this out because I'm going on a trip. And I want to be sure this camera works. I'm going to shoot this whole roll. I'm coming back. All I want is the negative developed. I want to just see it. It's all right. So I brought it back. Perfect, sharp, no light leaks, nothing. So then I said, and it's really good film. I want to buy that film too. So I bought a ton of that film, took it with me. Never been anywhere. I'm now 22, but I look like I was uh, 15 <laughs> when I was when I was a kid starting college, and I was 16. I looked like I was 10. I was just. I mean, it's, I think it's good to look younger. It helps you when you're older. But anyway, so what I, I end up getting on an airplane for the first time in my life. Now I never went anywhere by myself to begin with. If I wasn't with my family or you know, my father driving us somewhere or whatever, I was never anywhere. Take a plane, get on a plane, and I'm sitting there, and I'm looking ahead of me. I recognize the lady sitting there. And in those days, it was a 707. It was only a third occupied. It's not like overbooked today. And it was empty. It was beautiful. So I walked up, and I said, "Uh, pardon me, aren't you Sheila Graham? Yes. And I said, I read your column every day in the New York Post. She was a show business columnist. That was a very big thing. And she had been an actress, British actress in British movies. And she came to Hollywood where she had a long time affair with F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh And their relationship formed the basis of a movie with Deborah Carr playing her and Gregory Peck playing her paramour called Beloved Infidel. Great woman, great life. So I said, "Uh, could I sit down and talk to you? She said, sure, sit down. So for a great portion of my first trip to L.A., I'm sitting there with Sheila Graham, and I said, Miss Graham, I do a magazine. Screen through is illustrated, and I had a show. It's on the history of movies. I'm very interested in this. I'm going to L.A. for the first time, and I'm in interview people and all this sort of thing. And she just gave me background and interview. It sort of introduced me to Hollywood. So I get off plane in L.A., and you see... In L.A., the first thing you see, or I saw, was that kind of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, curved white thing that's out at LAX. Whenever you're at LAX, you see that curved white thing, and there it is. This is L.A., but I called it Hollywood because I was a movie buff, Hollywood. So I go and I make a call, and I had arranged my personal phone at home to take build calls. And I call my friend Bob Livingston, who's my favorite actor, and you know him as the star of Naughty Stewardesses and Blazing Stewardesses, but he's the real star of the Three Musketeers Western. He's the second Lone Ranger in the movies. He's everything great, and I've collected by now every starring film, or most of them, in 16 millimeters. He's just my favorite actor. So I call him up. I said, Bob, Sam Sherman, I'm here. I'm in at the LAX airport. Said, oh, great. Where are you going? I said, that's the part I don't know. I've got one bag here. I don't know where I'm going. Where should I go? I want to go to Hollywood. 
He said, well, he was up in Big Bear Lake. That's way up in San Berdu up in the hills. There. So he's, he says, well, we used to hang around in Hollywood. We'd stay at the Knickerbocker Hotel. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to the Knickerbocker Hotel. I'll call you from there. So I walk around dragging my case and so on and so forth. And I see uh, a bus stop. And I said, is there a bus to Hollywood here? Yeah, it's right here. I said, I want to go to the Knickerbocker Hotel. We stop right there. Get right on the bus. And there was a couple of bucks. Take me right there to the Knickerbocker Hotel. I go in. Boom. Sign in. $8 a day. Get to my room. Now, the strange thing about this Knickerbocker Hotel, it's lo- it's mainly empty. It's mainly empty. And uh, it looks very strange to me. I can't figure that out. But that's where I was. Now, later on, I had heard, this was August of 62, that earlier that month, a distraught actress had jumped off the roof of that hotel. I figured it was a vibey place. People didn't want to stay there. However, to correct what I think, I have a uh, book that I'm writing about my adventures in this business, or multiple books, and one of our editors, Chris Pajali, you may know Chris Pajali, he said that happened after I got there. So I, I don't really know why it was so empty and spooky. But I can tell you this, some years before, the great founding director of our industry, one of them, D.W. Griffith, walked into the lobby of that hotel, dropped dead right there. So we know that happened. So his ghost was there, and I went there, and I... First thing, what was the first thing I do when I come into the uh, room? I'm checked in there. Well, hit the bathroom for a second, get done with that. What's the second thing I would do? Turn the TV on. A child of television. Turn the TV on. And uh, what's the third thing I would do? Call Bob Livingston. So I call him up, and the TV's playing in the background. And it's a Lone Ranger TV episode. And I'm talking to him. I said, well, I'm here. At the thing. He said, what are you going to do? And blah, blah, blah. And he said, I'm going to come down to see you. He was going to come down from Big Bear. And because uh, I had never met him. I only knew him on the phone and correspondence. But he was not on the East Coast. I wasn't there. So I'm talking to him. And I said, wait, I think I hear your voice. And I turn. And there's Bob Livingston on television playing a cavalry colonel in an episode of the lone ranger as i'm talking to him on the phone <laughs> so weird well anyway i did uh continue on with my adventures in hollywood for three months and that's another story but i took photos of everything with my Koa model e and my favorite studio has always been republic pictures where bob livingston had worked john wayne had worked where they made all kinds of westerns and serials and things I liked. And I was always in touch with them. So I got to be friendly with the people that took over the lot and the company from the original owners. And I would go out there on an afternoon or a whole day, and I'd spend the whole day at Republic with Dave Bloom, who was a friend of mine who now ran the place. And they turned me loose. They'd say, well, you go... You know, where can I go with that? Go wherever you like. I said, can I take pictures? Yeah, do what you want. What studios allow kids to run around 
taking pictures of everything. So there I am on the Republic lot into the caves. You've seen the caves in serials and in movies where the hero's in there and the thing is flooded or they're digging for gold that blows up. I went right through those caves. I was shooting available light there. Then went to the Mexican village. You've seen it in a thousand movies. Photographed all of that. That's gone now. Went through the whole studio. Shot everything there. I just had a great time and went everywhere. And on the weekends, uh, Bob Livingston was very popular in a series of westerns called Three Musketeers. And that was like a western Three Musketeers. And he was eventually replaced by, hold for it, wait for it, John Wayne took over his role when Bob Livingston was a bigger star than John Wayne. The other two Musketeers were Ray Crash Corrigan and Max Terhune, who was a comedian ventriloquist in Westerns. I was very friendly with Max, and I knew Corrigan. And Max was still together with Corrigan. After all those years, started with him in 1936. In 62, he's at this big movie ranch that Corrigan owns, entertaining there on the weekends. The public came there. It was a big tourist attraction like Universal City or Disneyland. And uh, I'd be there photographing everything, doing everything. And Corrigan, who is an eccentric in his own way, he kind of humored me. And I'd written him up in my magazines. And I said one day to him, Crash, could I borrow a horse and ride around the ranch? Big property. And he said, can you ride? I said, since the age of eight, I can ride. So he says to one of his guys, saddle a horse from him. He's going to ride around the ranch. Well, Crash, we can't let anybody take a horse. He says he can ride. Get a horse for him. <laughs> Got a horse. Rode all around this place. Here's, here's all the locations of my fabled youth. Every western I remember, 90% of them were shot there and on these what's called insert roads where the stagecoach would run and where there'd be a big chase and whatever was going on. And I ran up and down the insert roads and all that. And I spent a lot of time with him there. And... Uh, as a matter of fact, he was having a friend of his as a guest star the next day. This was a Saturday, Rory Calhoun, which was who was a big star in those years. And I said, well, we're having Rory Calhoun out here tomorrow, and uh, it's going to be a big day. And so, so I said, Crash, because I was working in the magazine field. I knew marketing and everything. I said, what have you done to promote it? Well, nothing. He's going to be here. So, uh, I said, people are not mentalists. How do they know that Rory's going to be here tomorrow? Well, I said, maybe they don't. Well, I said, listen, you've got a big Conestoga wagon on Hollywood Boulevard right there parked in front of Groundman's Chinese. Let's get a sign. Well, how are we going to get the sign up on the, on the covered wagon? I said, I'm going back into Hollywood. I'm going to put it on there. What's going to hold it there? Do you have any picture wire? We'll make holes in it. I'll wrap it around. Put it well, how's that going to work? Corrigan was what you call uh, somebody who was a kind of perfectionist or very fussy. There's a word for it. But uh, he agreed to humor me. And he had a sign shop. We made these big signs. Come to Corrigan, Sundays, da, da, da. meet Rory Calhoun, da, 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 da. put it all over there. And on Hollywood Boulevard, 
there were tens of thousands of people passing that wagon every every hour. So the next day, when I was up there with uh, <clears throat> Crash and Max and Rory Calhoun, we were packed. We had a great day. But my thing is marketing, marketing, marketing. So later when I got into the picture business of producing and distributing, that's what it was, marketing. How do you get... How do you get them in, you know? And there was a great, great uh, distributor, the man who made Mom and Dad and promoted it, Kroger Bab, who was one of my idols. And Kroger Bab was from the Midwest. And Kroger Bab said the following, in order to sell them, you've got to tell them. <laughs> great stuff, great stuff. So... Anyway, we made pictures in California, a lot of them, and I used to come out there for those. And I mentioned Hetty Dietz had her Roloflex cameras, and she was shooting everything. And we have those stills. They're just great. And she filmed everything, shot everything. And I had a Roloflex then, too, one of several cameras I brought with me. And we're filming up, again, Big Bear. We're shooting up in Big Bear Lake. And... uh she had two rollies with her. Uh, I don't know if it was the wide-angle one. It was the regular one, a wide-angle, a telephoto version. And have a nice crank on the side. And she stripped the gears in one. Went to the next one. Strip. She said, Sam, I'm going to have to use your Roloflex because I stripped the gears in mine. I said, Hetty, you come first. Here's my camera. And she shot all the rest of the stuff up there. And uh, what happened next? Mine went. Oh. And I, I brought it back. Uh, we got back down to L.A. Uh, we were working up at Big Bear. Uh, and I brought it to a place called Mel Pierce Camera Repair. Yeah, and they overhauled that camera beautifully. They're still there. I saw the, an ad for them online somewhere. Mel Pierce Camera Repair. But what am I going to do? Because... Now I'm back in L.A. We wrapped the picture, finished it up in Big Bear. Now I'm back in L.A. And Bob Livingston now is living in Beverly Hills. He's got a beautiful home in Beverly Hills. He's no longer in Big Bear, but we were shooting in Big Bear. And I said, Bob, I need to get stills of you, promo use and ads and other stuff. Can I come over to your house? And shoot some photos sometimes. I said, sure, whatever you want. So I, I, at that point, I never really used studio electronic flash. I used little electronic flash, but not studio electronic flash. So I borrowed a Lowell lighting kit of regular floodlights from my partner, Al Adamson. I took them with me to Bob Livingston's house in Beverly Hills and set this up. And we shot, we shot, I shot. Nobody there but Bob, myself. The sun went out, wasn't even helping us. Bob, suits and regular clothing and some Western things. I felt here's my chance to get them in a Western outfit. So I liked Westerns, but there was no Western in the movie. But I shot a lot of things with him, all lit with the low lighting kit, which I knew how to light sets in movies, stills. It was all low lighting kit for stills. And what did I use? I had another twin lens reflex with me, which is one of my all-time favorites, which is called the Mamiaflex Automatic. 
Now, what that is, it's not the Mamiya Flex of later vintage, which had a bellows and took interchangeable lenses, but it's a kind of a Rolleiflex copy, that type of a camera. And uh, it's something I wanted. I once had one. I got rid of it. But I bought this at the Green Acres uh, camera store in Valley Stream on Long Island. I went in there. and What have you got in the way of twin lens reflexes? And they had some odd ones. And that's one I wanted. And it was mint. Yeah, I'd like to have that. $35. Today it's, you know, $300 to $1,000. $35. And I used that the whole night shooting all these shots of Bob Livingston. Black and whites in a suit. Some color. I had some, uh, some, I must admit, ectochrome. And maybe I had some leftover agfachrome. But uh, every shot came out great. Even though I didn't have the Rolleiflex, which I felt was better, it still was very good. And I still have all these things. But I don't have my Rolleiflex. I said, I don't need a Rolleiflex. I've got the other one. But I sort of uh, regretted that. But my uh, wife's late father had a Rolleiflex, and he gave it to me. He said, I want you to have my Rolleiflex. He didn't say, I want to sell it. I want this. I want you to have it. So you're going to appreciate it. And I kind of fixed it up and everything. And I don't use it much. But my advice is two and a quarter twin lens reflexes are the best. As much as I like two and a quarter single lens reflexes, I think twin lens reflexes are the best. And I think of all the best, the best is Rolleiflex. It really is the best. And I have a lot of imitations because I like them. And they're good. A lot of them are very good. But I'd like to get one of the really good later Rolleiflexes. They're very expensive. But uh, I'd like to have one. Those are really good. Some of the best photography in the history of photography was taken with Rolleiflex cameras. And there was uh, a man by the name of Fritz Henley. And he was a great... Great, and he was called. You know what he was called? See if you know. I forget that, but Mr. Rowley. Okay, I have a story about that for you. Tell me, right ahead. One of uh, my good friends in Michigan, Bill Bressler, when he was in high school, he picked up a book by Fritz Heinle about the Raleigh Flex, and he became his hero basically and he had you know he went out and he was he was bill is still a, a, a photographer he works he's a press photographer still working and when he was i believe when he was on his honeymoon um back in i guess the 80s he was de- somewhere down in uh the caribbean and fritz heinley was on this island wherever they're visiting and uh maybe it was i don't know if it's key west but something like that he walks in the store and they've got photographs by fritz heinley and, and bill goes in there and goes oh he goes wow he's here they didn't know he was in this area so oh, yeah he comes in here almost every day and and uh you know and 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 so bill bought bought a, i think a nude by fritz heinley in this store and he goes well i'd like to meet him he says well he, he's usually here um every almost every day and he usually comes in to see if anyone's buying his photographs 
and apparently not too many were at the time. So Bill leaves a note and says, well, I'd like to meet him. And so he came back to the store the next day, and, and they said, um, was he by? He says, yeah. He says, well, do you, can I meet him? He says, he doesn't want to meet you. <laughs> what? He goes, he goes my, my, he says, my hopes were dashed. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Why would he do that? He probably he probably thought he was probably some dumb punk kid that didn't that didn't he didn't really want to meet up with. But uh, I think that's a funny story from Bill because he tells it so so much better than I am. Wow, <laughs> what a tragedy! <laughs> what an opportunity! Yeah, <laughs> one of the great photographers like Ansel Adams, people like that. Ansel Adams used to use Rolly, and then he switched over to Hasselblad. I'll tell you the advantage of the twin lens reflex camera, because everything has an advantage. First of all, I didn't invent this, so none of this is my opinion, but it's proven true, and I endorse it. First of all, the twin lens reflex camera gives you a full-size view, same as your negative, when you're looking in the finder. Next, the next thing that's wonderful about it is although you don't have a prism, you could get it as an add-on, when you look in the finder coming down into the hood, the image is reversed left to right. Well, you could say, I don't like that because it's kind of mirror image and all. No, the advantage of it is you're looking at the composition, not the content. So you're not looking at someone's face because you know them. You're looking at the pose the structure of your image, or if you're taking a picture of a pictorial effect, the building, the house, the this, the that, whatever it is, you're, you're looking at the image for the design purpose of it. And that's really excellent. That's really excellent. Then, as I like to shoot flash shots, the basic, basic twin lens reflex has an advantage that Hasselblad and single-lens reflexes don't have, which is you can see the illumination of the image from the flash because it's a leaf shutter. It's not a focal plane shutter. There's no mirror flipping up for darkness permanently or for a short period. You're seeing that flash as it hits the subject. And if you're observant, you might say, oh, there's too much shadow on the right or too much this or too much that. It's just wonderful. And two and a quarter, to me, is the ideal format because it's much better than 35 in quality. I mean, 35 is good in its own way, but I think it's really a great, great format. I think another advantage of especially a twin lens reflex is that when you're doing street photography, people today expect you to be looking at them. And when you're looking down the camera, especially in today's world, it's totally alien to them that you're looking down into a device and they don't even think you're looking at them because mm -hmm. you're not making eye contact. So for doing street photography, actually it's, it's a way of looking like you're doing something else really. And, and, and people may be, are probably surprised you're taking their photograph. Excellent comment. Excellent comment. Uh, I, I also am finding today that twin lens reflexes, are making a comeback. A, in the Asian countries, there are two new ones that are being made. There's one that takes 
Fuji Instant Film. And there's another one that's digital. And they're not, a, not cheap. They're expensive cameras. Then I called Mike up and I told him there's a new Rolleiflex being made. I was wrong about that. I was looking at the internet because around this time is a great convention in Germany, the uh, Photokina, which is in Cologne. I've always wanted to go there. Unfortunately, never went. But great cameras through the years. And uh, they had an article on Google stating that Rolleiflex was making two new cameras, one a twin lens and one a single lens. So I went ahead and found that article and printed it out. It's a nice thing. You can get a nice print of the cameras. But it's not that old. It's six years ago that article was from. But I thought because Photokina was new, this Photokina article, that they were just doing it. But they still may be making uh, a twin lens Rolleiflex or up until recently. But that's the dream to get the newest, latest, greatest $5,000 twin lens Rolleiflex. But the Rolleiflex is the best. They had uh, good lenses, good mechanics. I remember reading an article comparing the Rolleiflex to the Ashika mat. And they said, the Rolleiflex has stainless steel gears. Cranking that won't break. The Ashika mat has brass gears, very easy to strip. Now, my experience goes the other way. <laughs> Hetty Dietz stripped three Rolleiflexes on one film. And they were the steel gears. How did that happen? Then my friend's father, Walter Creighton, his friend Bob, his father, Bob Creighton, was an AP photographer. He was always carrying that speed graphic, covering the news, covering the news. I said, what happened to your speed graphic? He said, I bought this Yashica mat, and this is excellent. And he was a guy with big hands carrying it. He never stripped that camera. So I don't know. These articles, they say this is no good, and this is good. You can't always believe articles. Use them as a guide, but who knows? Did you? Ever go digital? Well, it sounds like an insult. You know what I mean? It almost sounds like porno to me. I don't know. But but the fact of the matter is, I hate to admit it, but yes. I, I think we all do. I hate to admit it, but Did yes. And, and what I bought was a uh, Fuji black camera. It's about that big. And it looks like a real camera, but it's a digital camera. And then I bought a Kodak version of that. I don't know if Fuji made it or it just looks similar, but there was some problem with the Kodak one. I got it cheaply, but it does work. But the Fuji one worked quite well. And uh, what I wanted to do was I wanted to uh, market some of my classic movie posters cut down on my movie poster collection. So I said, this will be ideal, and I'll write to some guys, call some guys that want to see it, and I'll send them uh, you know, digital file of these pictures of the posters. So I, I set this up, put the posters on the floor, took the camera, had the flash, took the picture, and then I downloaded it into my Mac, 
and uh, had a bunch of them there. Then I sent them around, and this uh, guy said, yeah, maybe it's just that. Wasted all his time, sold nothing. So that's where that went. And uh, <laughs> I, I said, uh, I don't know. I really am not thrilled with digital. I don't know. What am I blaming digital? I couldn't sell posters. I'm blaming digital. It's ridiculous. It makes no sense whatsoever. But I prefer the uh, the film cameras. I prefer, I guess, 120, uh, the real European 120. And I can tell you I recently uh, re-engaged in the world of Eastern Bloc cameras. Now, this is interesting. Somehow I get involved with so many areas of still photography. It's just many, many areas. And uh, one area happened uh, about 20 years ago, and that was the area of Russian cameras. How did I get involved with that? It's just kind of crazy. Well, in those years, collecting cameras, which I always did, and lenses and parts and stuff, we began to have camera collectible shows. And they were, they were big at one time. We had the Photographic Historical Society of New York had big shows at the New York hotels. These things are all gone now. But my friend Bob Barlow kind of was influenced by that, and he put on a show at the uh, Meadowlands Hilton. It was a big show. And I used to have a, a table there or share it with a friend and um, bring excess things there to swap or sell or go to get things there and walk around. And it was a very, very great, great lot of fun I had going to those things. So anyway, uh, I'm sitting there. And next to me is a man, and he's selling Russian Hasselblads, known as Kiev 88. He's selling those, and he apparently bought out the U.S. importer, so he had a lot of them. But he wasn't selling many of those. He wasn't doing well with them. Why was he not doing well with those? Anyone want to guess? Because they didn't work. People would buy them. And they would wind it, wind it, wind it, and all of a sudden the thing jammed, didn't work. So he began putting those away, paid money for them, but selling prisms because those Russian prisms would fit on Hasselblad. And he was selling them to uh, Hasselblad users. So instead of paying $200 for a prism, they got it from him for $75. So I was interested because I was sitting next to him at the show uh, discussing this this matter. And uh, we were talking and talking and talking. And after a while, I got to be friendly with him. And his name is Art Golden. And he was a radiologist, a doctor with the VA. So a very interesting fellow, interested in photography. And before long, we formed a partnership in getting some better Russian cameras to sell them. And the better one was the Kiev 60, which was a copy of the Pentagon 6. 
It's like a blown up 35 millimeter camera. And those are very sturdy and they work where the Kiev 88 didn't work. So we ended up selling those to camera stores. We got new ones and we did some revisions of them and we called them Pro 66 and we were marketing them, doing things with them. But he still had his uh, Kiev 88s that didn't work. And uh, I met some other people from the Eastern Bloc and they had other cameras. So we we decided, uh, well, what can we do with these things that don't work? Well, anytime we sold them to a dealer, they returned them. They just jammed up. Well, I became interested in why didn't they work. It just was a curiosity of mine, because if the other ones worked, why shouldn't these work? And uh, the answer came back, they were badly made. You know, they just were badly made. And I met a man who had worked in their camera factory, and uh, he explained to me why they didn't work. And he said, this reason, wide camera's no good. I said, well, explain it to me. I'd like to know the reason. Because, again, I've been haunted by cameras with light leaks and cameras that didn't work since I'm a kid. And as a curiosity, I like to know why something works or doesn't work. So this man tells me, this reason. He said, camera factory in Kiev, first week of month, make parts. Do nothing but make parts. Second and third week, sit around, smoke and drink vodka. Third week, throw cameras together fast. (laughs) Throw cameras together fast. I think that was a classic. So I began to meet people from the Eastern Bloc and find out just as at this time, the Soviet Union was splitting up and these different republics, 16 republics of the Soviet Union, Soviet Socialist Republics, they became Kazakhstan and Ukraine and this and that. And I found out that most of these so-called Russian cameras or Soviet cameras were made in Ukraine at the Arsenal factory, which had been an arsenal making weapons back to the 1700s. That's where they threw cameras together fast. And I began to meet people who were involved with that factory. And I said, look, you're not going to sell these. We tried to sell them. They're mostly broken. They all jam up. There's something basically wrong with these cameras, how they're made and how they work. Week two and three. That's what was basically wrong with them. Yes, that's right. That's right. So I began to meet people, and I got some some of these cameras, and I began to see what was wrong with them. I opened some of them up, and I looked at them, and I saw that the gears were not polished, as gears should be in a mechanical gadget of any kind. They were made and thrown together, and you could feel that they were rough, and they were under-lubricated anyway. So I began to offer my suggestions back to the people, back to Ukraine, to Kiev, that they polish the gears better, that they do this better, and they do that better. Well, at the same time, maybe I influenced it, maybe I didn't, there began to be 
what was known as Eastern Block upgraders. They would buy the basic cameras from the factory and they would revise them. They would change the lens mount so they could use not the Kiev 88 mount, but the Pentagon 6 mount and use the East German lenses. And they could do other things and they would fix them and all that sort of thing. So I um, was kind of influencing this. And then I wanted to work with the factory. And through a long story, the head of the factory came to uh, Cambridge in Massachusetts. And I drove up there four hours with a Ukrainian who spoke Ukrainian, met the head of the factory. He didn't speak English. And I told them what we needed, and they couldn't do it. And that was my end of being involved with that. But along the line, I collected a number of upgraded versions of these cameras. And a man by the name of Givorg Vartanian, and he has a company called Arax, A-R-A-X, and he is in Kiev. And uh, he knew I was in behind the scenes in this, with a lot of articles on the Internet and encouraging people to be involved with the upgraded cameras. Well, he came along and he said, I'm going to upgrade these. I have technicians. We're going to make them really good, and I know what these problems are. And I wrote back and forth. I said, Gevorg, listen, you've got to follow my guidelines, and if you do, you'll be successful. And I, I wish you well, because I think it's good what you want to do. So we'll start by you making me one of your revised cameras. I'm going to send you an email. You've got to do this. Have every gear polished smoothly so that they work. So they're smooth and they don't stick by a spur on the gear jamming up. Then you've got to get some good lubricant in there on top of it. Then you've got to do this and that and the other thing. I gave him all, all this list. He said, well, if I build one of these cameras for you to your specs, will you give me a good review online? Which I did. And uh, I got to be friendly with him because the camera he made was perfect. I still have it. Never had a problem. Excellent, excellent. So I um, stayed in touch with him. And in my buying and trading photographic equipment, I got some things with problems. And I said, could you do something for me? I got this great lens. It's for Pentagon 6. But the front element had all the coating mottled. I know what that is. That's sea spray. Somebody went, was shooting the ocean, and the salt got on that thing and ruined the coating. Could you recoat that? He said, yes. So I had two cameras that had, two lenses that had it. I took the lenses apart. I didn't want to send a huge lens like that, 300 millimeter lens, to uh, Kiev. So I just took out the front element, shipped it to him, did a beautiful job on two different lenses. And he could fix other things. So I just recently got a broken Kiev 88. Now, it wasn't just the Kiev 88. It was one of these upgraded cameras that had been improved by not by Givorg, by, by someone else. And the shutter was broken. It was all uh, jammed up and everything. And I sent it to him. And he just fixed it like brand new. Brand new. I said... I just sent the camera to Kiev. Kiev? Who would send the camera to Kiev? Oh, I sent it to him, and, and he fixed it, and uh, he's been away, but I want to write him a long email thanking him. It was very reasonable, the work he does, and just beautiful, perfect, perfect work. There it is. 
this is the lesson going back to the light leak cameras. <laughs> Broken cameras can be fixed. Defective cameras, like Kiev 88, can be silk purses made out of sow's ears. You can make something good out of them. That was part two of our interview with Sam Sherman, podcast at filmphotographyproject.com. If you have a question for Sam or some comments for us, and we'll be back very soon with part three. We'll see you soon.